Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. So welcome to our final episode of season three. Um, In this episode, we're going to be answering your questions. So thank you so much to everyone who sent through um, their questions, their queries, their suggestions for future episodes. Um, We have a massive, massive list to work through. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, We got a lot of questions. So we're going to answer the more straightforward ones in this episode. And a lot of the others deserve a whole episode just to cover that topic in enough depth. So look out for them in season four and five, things like covering relationships and friendships, autistic burnout, hormones, aging, personality, uh, language, hyperacuity to sounds, selective mutism. We've got a great guest coming on and differences between PTSD and neurodiversity. So we're going to start off with some general discussion around the diagnostic process. So we received actually a whole heap of questions about diagnosis. So various aspects of diagnosis. So we're just going to kind of run through and answer some of the things that I guess have come out of those questions. So we actually cover all the information to do with getting a diagnosis and the diagnostic process in detail in episode two of season one. And it's one of our most listened to episodes. So I would definitely recommend checking that out. So just briefly, we're going to run through the process of getting a diagnosis uh, in Australia, at least. We can't really speak to, I guess, the processes in other countries, but essentially in Australia, to get a diagnosis of autism or ADHD, you can either do that through a psychiatrist, a pediatrician, if you're a kid, or a psychologist or clinical psychologist or clinical neuropsychologist. There's a couple of different routes to diagnosis through those different um, diagnosticians. So some people might go first to a psychologist to get kind of a comprehensive assessment. If you're wanting to get a diagnosis for ADHD and you are wanting to trial medications, you have to go to a psychiatrist anyway to be prescribed the medication. So a lot of people bypass the psychologist assessment and might try and go straight to a psychiatrist because it's kind of two birds with one stone essentially. And it can take a really long time to get in to see someone. So just kind of making the one appointment can sometimes be a bit more efficient. The potential downfall of that is unless it's a psychiatrist that specializes in ADHD and particularly women with ADHD, they might not investigate your kind of traits or history as thoroughly um, compared to if you get a comprehensive assessment. But, you know, it's kind of you win some, you lose some with that in terms of the efficiency and the thoroughness. Similarly, same thing, I guess, with getting an autism diagnosis. You can get an autism diagnosis through straight through a psychiatrist. 
Lots of people actually tend to go through the psychologist route for an autism diagnosis because unlike ADHD where there's a really clear kind of medication that you can use to help manage some of the behaviours and traits, um, it's not really the case for autism. You know, you can't really medicate autism per se. You can medicate anxiety, you could medicate mood issues, but it's not like, it's, it's not the same as say getting an ADHD diagnosis and there being a really clear medication pathway. So lots of people actually just choose to go through a psychologist assessment. Um, Another query that comes up from people is asking if they need a referral from their GP um, or their primary care provider to get an assessment. And you actually don't need to go through the GP to approach a psychologist to undertake an assessment because um, at the moment, especially for adults, there isn't really a Medicare rebate. For that per se, so that's a step that you can you can take out of the equation if you want to. You can just ring up the psychology clinic, inquire, and book an appointment. So that's a kind of quick and dirty rundown, I guess, of the assessment process or the diagnostic process. Some other questions that came up around um, diagnosis. We've got a lot of questions, essentially looking at what are the pros and cons of diagnosis. Is diagnosis something that is worth pursuing? Is it worth pursuing it now that I'm, you know, in my 50s, 60s, 70s or beyond? And really just trying to understand what would diagnosis mean for me and is it worth going down that route? So I guess one thing that comes up a lot is particularly for individuals who are late diagnosed, so diagnosed in adulthood, there can often be quite a bit of grief and adjustment to that. So that can be adjustment to identity, grief around, you know, being late diagnosed. One of our listeners in their question was saying that, you know, she's feeling like she's falling more and more into an autistic depression. So just feeling down and having a depressed mood around feeling like, is my life always going to be this hard? And so I guess we just wanted to speak a little bit to some of that adjustment and that grieving process. Yeah. My, my advice for people is that it's going to take about six to 12 months minimum to really process getting a diagnosis. And often what people actually end up experiencing or going through are different stages of the grieving process around getting the diagnosis. So there is a a model called the five stages of grief and it's by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So basically she was a psychiatrist and it, it goes through this model where when you're going through any sense of something in your life changing um, where you're experiencing a loss. So sometimes that can be, you know, the loss of a loved one or a pet, but for a lot of times it it means the loss of an identity or the loss of a dream that you might've had for yourself or or certain expectations, um, a way of life. People will experience different emotions going through processing that uh, change And so you can experience things like numbness and shock through to anger, through to bargaining, which is kind of trying to make sense of what's happened by going, you know, if such and such was different, would this have happened or would it have taken so long for me, you know, to get my diagnosis? If this, this and this was different, how would my life look, you know, differently as well? People experience feelings of depression and sadness uh, and then acceptance 
And usually people will go through all of those different emotions in a a bit of a cycle. And it's not like you just kind of go through it all and reach acceptance and then it's, you know, happy ending. It's a bit of a cyclical process that you'll go through and a bit of a, a journey that you'll go through. You have moments of acceptance and then you might go back to anger or Um, shock or numbness. Yeah, I think that's such an important concept for people to understand because I feel like, you know, with something like a um, neurodivergence diagnosis, oftentimes there can be pressure either internally or externally that it's like, this is such a wonderful thing, you know, congratulations, this is amazing. And now you kind of understand this piece of, of your identity and this piece of the puzzle, which is true. To a degree, right? Absolutely. You know, it can be so validating and so identity affirming and life affirming to find out what your neurotype is. And both Monique and I, I think, are very strong proponents of diagnosis if that's available to you or even just understanding your neurotype. But it's also really important not to completely, I guess, ignore some of the negative emotions that come up around that and that it's actually really normal, as you were saying, Monique, to go through these five stages of grief and to experience quite intense emotions around that, negative emotions as well as positive emotions. So I feel like even just knowing that that internal process is a very normal one to experience. And it's normal to have these sort of intense experiences and cyclical experiences around, you know, getting a diagnosis that can alleviate some of the shame and the distress that people feel. And I think, Monique, that was really awesome, that time frame that you gave, that it's actually not supposed to just be like, great, diagnosis, amazing, moving on. <laughs> it's really normal to need lots of time to process that. Mm. Yeah, and it can be helpful to unpack your diagnosis in therapy afterwards as well. Another really big question we had was uh, about, you know, what age should I tell my child or adolescent that they have had an assessment and, you know, they've been given a diagnosis of autism or ADHD or dyslexia or some other type of neurodivergence. And honestly, the earlier, the better, the earlier that someone sits down and explains things in an age appropriate way um, and in an affirming way the earlier your child is going to develop that better understanding of themselves and really understand the why if they have certain negative experiences rather than them internalizing blame for having, you know, certain negative experiences or feedback, they can go, okay, that's because, you know, the other person may not get that I'm neurodivergent. Completely. And I just, uh, I feel so strongly that if people are different in any way, kids know that from a very early age. And it all just depends on, as you said, Monique, how you go about explaining that to a child. It's like this, you know, whole Harry Potter idea, right? Where fear of the name increases fear of the thing itself. So if you are like, oh, we never say ADHD or autism in our house, that's like a dirty word, then of course your child's going to internalize that that's a bad thing. And that's, you know, that's really bad. But If it's just a normal thing, like, and and the thing that I always equate it to is introversion and extroversion. We have no problem saying to our children, I think you're probably, you just need a bit of space because you're more introverted, whereas your brother is more extroverted. There's no stress around telling children that aspect of their personality and their sense of self. And I would love to get to a place where our neurotype is just the same as that. 
you're neurotypical, your sister's autistic, you know, I'm an ADHD or whatever. And that's just a normal part of the pieces that make up the patchwork quilt that we are. So the more you normalize it, the earlier you tell your kids and the more kind of affirming language that you use, the better that that's going to be for them in so many different aspects of their identity and mental health going forward. Yeah. So some of the other things people asked about with diagnosis is what are the pros and cons of getting a diagnosis? You know, is it is it worth it for them? Some of the things that it's good to kind of go through is that if you have an official diagnosis and it's on your medical record in Australia, that there are some important things to understand that that might impact. So things like being able to um, apply for jobs within the police or the army, things like that being on your medical record and people potentially discriminating against you. It's even can affect things like uh, if you are coming in on a visa from another country and you get an official diagnosis and you want to apply for another visa to stay here or um, to, to emigrate to Australia, it could actually affect your ability to go and live in another country and work um, and become a citizen of another country as well. Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge those potential costs or the barriers that an official diagnosis can actually put up for people. Obviously, the the positives of getting a diagnosis are really around that self-advocacy, self-awareness, identity, um, and knowing what your diagnosis is can then help you advocate for yourself in a work setting, give you access to supports. Like in Australia, we have the NDIS, so the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So, you know, there's practical positives and practical negatives as well. But in terms of your personal identity, I personally really only see positives, but I think it would be remiss of us not to identify some of these kind of practical or tangible potential barriers. And, you know, that's definitely something to consider uh, if you're considering going down the diagnostic route. And then I guess just on that too, self-diagnosis can be really valid as well. If you don't feel like you need an official diagnosis for anything practical or you feel like actually, this is something that really resonates with me. And I identify with all the individual elements and traits of that. And that's a really helpful concept or way to see yourself. And you'd rather avoid some of those, you know, more logistical kind of tangible um, negatives, then that's valid to just continue and and stick in that kind of self-diagnostic lane. So for the rest of the episode, we're going to be picking out some specific questions that people have asked. Um, And the questions that we've picked are ones that lots of people asked in various different ways. So they're kind of common questions, but we've just sort of selected one question to exemplify that. So Monique, did you want to go ahead and read out our first question? Okay. So we had someone ask, uh, I'm curious to know why some people are like Debbie and can take in lots of information, need to keep busy, move and can think on the go. They are the ones who thrive in chaos. Then there are others that freeze and cannot function unless there is absolutely clear structure, quietness, and routine. They are the opposite sides of the coin. Does it come down to sensory processing or executive functioning? 
So that's a great question. Um, in my mind, it really does come down to sensory processing in the sense of how the brain actually processes all forms of incoming information. So not just information like, you know, our external five senses, but also cognitive information. So I think in a previous episode, it might have been our interception and alexithymia episode potentially. I don't know, I can't quite recall. But in a previous episode, we talked about the zones of regulation. Um, So that's just a color chart that lots of OTs use, occupational therapists um, and psychologists as well. And it's basically a really clear way of understanding the difference in internal arousal state. So how internally keyed up someone is essentially. So some people, um, well, actually, let's just quickly go through them. So for instance, at the bottom, we've got the blue zone. So this is a low arousal state. Um, and blue zoners, when we or when we're in the blue zone, we're often experiencing um low intensity emotions like you know, sadness or boredom or relaxation or sleepiness, lethargy. So it's kind of this like lower state. And our thoughts are similar, you know, they're kind of just like a bit of a dreamy river kind of meandering around. And our uh, body might also be uh, like hard to hold itself up. You know, we, we need support. We're leaning on things, et cetera. Then we've got our green zone. That's a slightly higher arousal state. Um, we're more alert. We're calm. We're in a good mood. Not super happy, but just a good mood. And we're kind of a got like an average level of internal alertness and arousal. Then we've got the yellow zone. So that's more intense still. Um, emotions there are on the positive side, super joyful, super happy, super excited, you know, exuberant. Um, But then the negative emotions in the yellow zone are things like feeling anxious, feeling really frustrated, annoyed, angry, etc. And that's kind of a keyed up physical state and a keyed up cognitive state as well. So your thoughts are kind of zipping around everywhere. And then we've got our red zone and that's our explosion zone. This is our kind of fight or flight zone. So to get to our listener's question, a lot of the time, it can come down to what's your baseline level of arousal. So most neurotypical people live at a baseline somewhere in the green zone. We obviously, every single person kind of fluctuates between all the zones, depending on what's happening. But at a baseline, most neurotypicals live in that green zone. Whereas most neurodivergent people are often have their baseline somewhere in the yellow zone or somewhere in the blue zone. So someone like Debbie, and I think our listeners referring to Debbie Jeffries, uh, who came on season one um, and she talks about her experience of ADHD. Someone like Debbie is probably more of a yellow zoner in that she has a more keyed up internal arousal state. And so having that lots of stimulation, lots of things happening, that kind of chaos, and, and Debbie's not on the spectrum as well. So we should say too, if you're an autistic and ADHDer, um, that obviously presents its kind of, you know, its own presence. But for, say, for someone who is an ADHD not on the spectrum who's a yellow zoner, exactly as our listener um, described, they often really love those kind of high energy, high stimulation, lots of um, change, lots of like information coming in because it sort of matches their internal state. Whereas someone who's more of a blue zoner or closer to the blue zone, and this can often be our inattentive type ADHD is too. A lot of inattentive type ADHD is our blue zoners. And this is where they prefer one piece of information to come in at once 
if it's too many lanes of information, it's like a block in the river and it feels really chaotic or it feels overwhelming. Um, if it's just one source of information at once, that's really manageable because that's not too much stimulation or too much um, sensory input, I guess. I hope that answers the question. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that, Monique? Yeah, I think some people who are both autistic and ADHD might find that they flip between the yellow and the blue zone, but they're maybe not spending a lot of time in the green zone. So it's go, go, go until you're exhausted and you collapse and then you're in the blue zone Mm, until you recover and then you go back up to yellow. So our next question relates to this idea of imposter syndrome and identity flux. So um, a listener has said, very recently, I received an official autism diagnosis. I've been experiencing what I've read to be autistic imposter syndrome, some days doubting the whole thing for some reason. What are your thoughts on that? And another listener, and we've kind of grouped these questions together, but another listener has said, for those of us who've slipped through the gaps due to being twice exceptional, female, et cetera, getting or waiting for a diagnosis can be quite hard. What suggestions do you have for this period of time where our identity feels in flux, like our foundations have been shaken? How can we find some stability and peace? How can we communicate this upheaval to those around us? Um, yeah, so I think with the the first question around uh, imposter syndrome and doubting your diagnosis, doubting yourself, I think that's really common. Uh, most of the people that I've worked with or talked to have said that they might have had a bit of a, a light bulb moment where they're like, oh, I think actually I could be autistic or ADHD. Then they'll go and read up all of this information, really go into a deep dive and almost become like a new special interest or a hyperfixation. And to be honest, that can be a little bit diagnostic in itself because (laughs) I don't know if a neurotypical person, you know, would probably get that obsessed uh, (laughs) with that information, to be honest. Uh, They might kind of go about it in just a bit more of a moderate way. Um, Oh, yeah, I'll read half an hour of facts and then that's enough for me. But yeah, I think people are really searching for that meaning, searching for that answer as to kind of like why they felt that they've been different. And sometimes there's a fear that that answer could be could too good to be true and that it's it's sort of like, oh my gosh, I've been given an answer, but you're so used to questioning and trying to find an answer that it's difficult to accept the answer that you've been given and actually go, okay, this is it. Yeah. I think too, a lot of autistic women in particular and ADHD are women, you know, if you're neurodivergent and you're female, raised as female, you've kind of got through two identities that you have, this experience of being taught to not believe yourself, not believe what feels right in your gut, not believe your kind of instinctual nature. And as exactly as you were saying, Monique, when you kind of come across this answer and it's like, oh, this is exactly why I've been feeling this way or, you know, I completely resonate with this or completely feel this. I think a lot of neurodivergent women can sort of have that fear that it's like, but can I trust that I feel that this is right for me? Am I making this up? Am I just pretending that I'm like this for me? And it sounds like for you too, Monique, I've never met someone who's like, 
made up that they're neurodivergent because most neurotypical people don't think they're neurodivergent or maybe you know maybe they might maybe they might be like oh that's kind of something that that fits with me um but very quickly it's like oh no but not the rest of it right so yeah, I think it's really normal to have that experience of of imposter syndrome. And I feel like that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier around how long it actually takes to process getting a diagnosis or actually incorporating and internalizing this new brand new set of information into your internal narrative of self. And that takes time. Yeah, definitely. And I think too with the imposter syndrome, I think that just takes time you know, to kind of let the diagnosis settle in and sink in. And I think, again, like what you're saying, most people who are not autistic, they won't be going, oh, yeah, wow, this really resonates with me. And they won't be, the majority of them won't be then going on and actually wanting to get a full assessment. Um, So it's kind of a self-selecting population, to be honest, who come for assessment. So the second half of that question or our the next kind of question from another listener there, which is, I guess, really thinking about during that period of upheaval of identity flux, how can we kind of communicate that to those around us um, if you're going through that period? And I think a really hard thing for lots of adults going through a diagnostic process or, you know, this kind of neurodivergence discovery, a lot of the difficulty is The self that you have been projecting is not the self that you have been experiencing internally. So people around you might be like, well, I don't think that's you at all. That doesn't fit with you. That's nothing like you. And the really hard thing is then having to explain, well, actually, what it has cost me to maintain this facade of normalcy, right, in inverted commas, um, or to kind of project this image of someone who is coping, who is completely the same as everyone else, who is able to kind of do all of these things, that's actually had a huge, huge cost on me. And I think a good thing to say to people as you're going through this process is, you know, I'm now at a point where I realize why it's costing me so much. And what I'd like to do is explore that. And what we often find is that when people um, find out more about their kind of uh, neurodivergent identity, it can seem from the outside that they are becoming, you know, more autistic or more ADHD. Those traits are kind of more evident to other people. And the reason for that is really logical and rational, which is the more you accept yourself, the less you mask. So it's actually the more your internal experience is matching your outward projection of that. Um, and that's a you know factual and good way to explain that, you know, to the people around you. Yeah. And I think too, with being in that period where your identity is in flux, I think it's just good to acknowledge that, acknowledge that your identity is going through a change. Ask yourself, can you sit with that Um, and just allow that to be because it's not something that you can actually 100% control. It's like a natural process that you're going to go through and you'll reach, you know, that new identity when that time comes And we're actually not meant to kind of have the same identity throughout our whole life. We're meant to go through different identity formations or try on different identities. So yeah, getting that diagnosis and then identifying as an autistic person or an ADHD or dyslexic. Yeah, that's just kind of another layer 
to the onion that is you with many different layers, many different intersecting identities. So even though this one identity is changing, you'll still have others that you can kind of hold on to while you're going through that transition stage. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So another listener asked, what are some tips on addressing the barriers to self-care for neurodivergent people, such as sensory barriers and things like drinking enough water? So I love this question because it's such a practical question. Um, And regular listeners would know that Monique and I are very big on knowing your sensory profile, um, knowing what it is that your body finds uncomfortable and what it is that your body finds soothing and pleasurable. And I would suggest that that's the first step. Get a really good handle on what your sensory profile is. And that might involve, you know, doing a questionnaire with your psychologist or an occupational therapist, but it could also even just involve taking stock, sitting down and having a think, going through all the aspects of your day and thinking about what things are aggravating and frazzling for me and what things are soothing for me. What things do I find soothing? So that's the first step, knowing your sensory profile, knowing those things. Um, And then once you know that, then you can actually start to put in place some practical things to address those underlying whys. Yeah. And I would say um, sometimes it comes down to knowing your sensory profile, but also looking at what is your executive functioning strengths and then what are the areas that you're going to need support in because your body will have different needs. So we all have a need to eat 
drink water, you know, have a hygienic environment, um, all of those sorts of things and do self-care tasks like showering, brushing our teeth um, for different reasons. But often what will happen is people will become so burned out by those other demands in their life that they won't have enough spoons to do those self-care activities, whether it's because different elements of that self-care activity like brushing your teeth um, is a big sensory trigger um, and you don't have enough spoons left over from everything else you have to do that day to then brush your teeth. Or sometimes it can be an executive functioning thing in terms of breaking down the task and actually being able to initiate the steps to do that self-care task. So keeping in mind things like making your environment work for you, asking for help with some of those self-care tasks. So a lot of neurodivergent people tend to work better actually working in a team with others and like reminding each other of those self-care things or helping each other body double to drink water, you know, setting reminders on your phone, um, making sure like if you need to drink water, if some people really don't like drinking plain water, they prefer uh, sparkling water or maybe they need like coconut water or an electrolyte drink, things like setting visual reminders to drink water in front of you. Like I have a, I think I've got a glass of water or, or a water bottle like in every room in the house. So whatever room I go into, there's water there. <laughs> and like I have to have special water that like doesn't taste like chlorine as well. Like I have a proper water filter and everything because I find the taste is a big barrier for neurodivergent folk, but there actually has been a, a study done by USQ on autistic people and, and drinking water. And what they found in the study was that if you were taught as a kid that drinking water is really important, the autistic people that were taught as kids that they actually tended to overdrink water, so drink too much water. The kids that were never taught that drinking water is important or like the interceptive cues around that they will tend to under drink water. So it's sort of like if you're autistic, you know, you're going to drink either too much or not enough and not get that golden ratio in the middle of just enough water for hydration, which I thought was super interesting as a study. It's like so interesting. Yeah. It's like, wow, actually this is a common issue for people. Mm. Yeah. I think all of those things are such good kind of practical advice. And one that I would add to that just with kind of self-care tasks and practical tasks is thinking about what is the point of this task? What's the key reason why I want to do this thing? And only doing the aspect of the task that's necessary for that. So an example of that being, um, we might think, say, brushing your teeth right? Okay. The point is I want my mouth to feel clean. So rather than going through all the process of physically brushing your teeth with a toothbrush, if that feels overwhelming that day, just rinsing your mouth out with mouthwash or even just getting some water and putting some, a little bit of toothpaste in the water and swishing that around your mouth right? Showering. The point is I want to feel clean. Maybe using baby wipes or wet wipes to wipe yourself down rather than going through all the transitions. Because I find actually the key barrier to showering for lots of autistic folk is the amount of different transitions that are involved in having a shower. You go from clothed to naked, from cold to hot, from wet to dry, and then all out again. Um, And lots of parents of autistic kids talk about how it's so difficult to get them in the shower 
but then it's also difficult to get them out of the shower. Um, and that's a transition thing. So, and, and we know that for autistic folk, transitions cost a lot right? They require a lot of energy and spoons. So on those days where, yeah, you don't have the capacity to do the full executive functioning task, like all the aspects of it, what's the point of this task? And I'm just going to do the thing that gets that point, like preparing food. If you've got to the end of the day and you're like, I'm really hungry. The point is you need to eat something. You don't need to prepare a big elaborate dinner. So even if it's just toast, that's better than not eating anything. Because I think oftentimes we can get into this mindset of, well, if I can't do the thing right, then I just won't do it at all. But you can just do one element of something and that can still be enough. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Toast for dinner. <laughs> the dinner of champions. <laughs> <laughs> or cereal for dinner. Like oh, breakfast yeah. for dinner is still, you know, still counts. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to our next question. So our next question is around medication. Can medication help for autistic executive functioning issues? For example, I have difficulty with getting started on a task that I know that I have to do for work. I want to do it, but I can't start. I think it's because of how much energy I need to put in to do the job, even a low quality job. I can kind of start to get some words on paper, but I get drawn away from it easily. I feel a huge resistance to doing some things. I don't even procrastinate or do something more interesting instead. I just sit there feeling miserable and guilty thinking about it. Another problem I have is getting up and going on the day on the weekend. All I can manage to do is make breakfast or watch TV and play on my phone when I really want to do things, but I can't start or even get dressed without drip feeding myself tiny tasks over a few hours until I get into the swing of it by late afternoon. Then I feel like I can do things, but there's not enough time in the day. I'm fairly certain I'm not ADHD, especially after listening to season two, episode one of the podcast. To me, this person sounds like they're in burnout. It sounds like they're totally overwhelmed by having to get through their work tasks and then get to the weekend and there's no capacity left over for anything. So as we mentioned, we're going to do a whole episode on autistic burnout in season four. So have a listen out for that. But just quickly, uh, getting back to the kind of the point of the question around medication, um, I think this is where it is so crucial to try and understand why something is happening. So, for instance, if this individual is in burnout, medication is not necessarily going to help unless they're also experiencing, you know, mood dysregulation or anxiety, and then potentially medication can help with those things. Um, but we know, you know, the treatment for burnout is less demand placing less demands onto yourself. So before we're thinking about, okay, can we medicate this thing? My first step would always be, let's have a thorough unpacking of why this is happening and under what circumstances, because then we can work out what route we can take. 
Yeah, I would agree. I think with the comment about on the weekend having difficulty getting up and get going, like if that was me, I would be thinking, okay, so I'm I'm not a morning person, which I I'm not actually. <laughs> and my my first thought reading that was like, oh, but like, isn't it okay to like if it's just you and you, you don't have kids or whatever that need to be fed and you know dressed and and washed and all of that on weekends? But if it's just you, why? why have to do anything in the morning? Like usually on the mornings on weekends, that's all I do is just wake up and make breakfast and then scroll on my phone or read a book. And then I, I purposely don't do much until lunchtime because I know I'm not a morning person and I try not to schedule on anything in the morning. So any chores that I would do or like classes or meeting up with friends are all in the afternoon because I know I need that morning time, especially after working to rest and reset and recover from that burnout of the week. And that's okay. So our next question is about um, sensory processing. And once again, we've kind of put together two questions um, that relate to differences in sensory processing. Um, So the first one says, can sensory differences manifest as a general discomfort in certain environments as opposed to a reaction to a specific identifiable trigger? For example, feeling uncomfortable, anxious, or as though something is wrong, but not being able to identify that a singular lighting or sound or smell is the problem. So absolutely, yes, 100%. Yeah, definitely, especially with things like shopping centres, Because often you might spend time in a shopping center and it's like not one thing, but it's actually a combination of the lighting and then the visual crowding in the stores and the people moving around and hearing all the people. So usually it's it's more than one thing. And then sometimes people will have um, a sensory trigger that is more identifiable as that one, one trigger. Yeah. And for people who find it hard or or don't really recognize, okay, this is the one thing that is triggering for me, or this particular sensory experience is like really aversive for me. They are often the people who exactly as this listener um, has asked, they're often the people who get really overwhelmed in multi-sensory environments because it's essentially the brain can process and manage and work through like one source of sensory input, but if it's more like there's multiple lanes of sensory input at once, it's kind of like filling up that cup of your nervous system and it's just too many inputs um, and competing inputs as well. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like an example of a specific trigger would be being at home and hearing the neighbor start up the lawnmower. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing like that to bring on some rage. (laughs) So this sort of relates, I guess, to our next question which is the opposite side of that coin. Um, And I'm going to, this is a long question, but I'm going to read it out in full because I think, you know, a lot of uh, people probably resonate with this. So this listener says, one major struggle that I've had my whole life is, I guess, what one might call tactile defensiveness. While I often hear about autistic children disliking socks or the tags in their clothing, I've never encountered much more information than that outside of my own lived experience. As an undiagnosed child and adolescent, I was made to feel great shame about my sensitivity to clothes. I would wear the same thing over and over. I wouldn't wear the clothes purchased or made for me. I could not wear what was popular. As an adult, I've had the freedom to hunt down what works for me, although the range of what I consider comfortable can still be very limiting. 
Now that I'm almost 50, changes to my body have contributed to further restricting my options, making it harder to participate in normal activities. I'm fortunate enough to have a therapist who specializes in autism, but even with her, I find it difficult to discuss this due to the shame and perceived notion that I'm the only one um, who is affected to this degree. I do wonder if there's any other women who struggle in the same way and if they exist, how they manage and how it might be possible to not let the shame get the best of me. Absolutely great question. And I guess, again, at the outset, completely not alone, completely not the only one. Um, I'm betting that there is a whole bunch of people listening to this saying, me too, me too, me too, as we've talked about before being sensory sensitive, the behaviors or experiences or traits of neurodivergence don't just disappear once you turn 18. (laughs) They continue into adulthood. Um, And it's really, really common for autistic women to have this really high sensitivity to clothing, fabrics, uh, tactile experiences. Yeah. And to say to that, I think with the shame, it's really important to be able to be comfortable in your clothing and it's completely okay to wear clothing that you find comfortable, even if it doesn't, um, I guess, fulfill the norms of what you think you quote unquote should be wearing, especially um, as women of like different age groups. Um, Cause I think sometimes there is pressure from society for women in different age groups to look a certain way or wear certain clothing Um, and there can be a pressure of like okay when you're in your 20s versus your 30s versus your 40s and 50s to wear clothing differently and sometimes it's not until people get older like um, maybe in their 30s 40s or 50s that they start feeling comfortable wearing more comfortable clothing Um, they feel like they don't have to fit in with what society says that they should dress like or look like. But a lot of autistic people in particular will, yeah, actually from a younger age, just wear things that are comfortable for them and not really care about, you know, the norms and the fashions that are going on. They're going to dress more for their authentic style or to meet their sensory needs. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah, completely. I think um, what you were saying there, Monique, about, it's absolutely so imperative that you're comfortable in your clothes. And I think the big thing too around shame in lots of different facets for neurodivergent women, and again, particularly late diagnosed neurodivergent women, is this idea of coming into the awareness that you actually have permission to have needs you have permission to need to wear comfortable clothes. That doesn't say anything bad about you. That's not encroaching on anyone else's freedom or joy or life. If wearing comfortable clothes is something really important to you because it actually genuinely is so aversive to wear clothes that don't have a particular fabric or material, that is a valid and fair need to have. Yeah, Michelle and I, we've actually had chats about um, this. Like we're both in our 30s now and we've had chats about how when when you hit your 30s, your body changes um, and as it does when you hit your 40s, 50s, 60s. And I think that um, as women in particular, because we do have so many hormonal changes and cycles that we go through over our lifetime, I don't think our bodies are meant to actually stay the same. 
So when you're in your 30s, your body may not look the same as it did when you're a teenager, and that's actually really normal. And then when you're in your 50s, your body may not feel the same or look the same as it did when you were in your 20s or 30s, and that's really normal. And it's okay to want to dress comfortably. Uh, And we've had chats where I think we've both actually gone out and bought whole new wardrobes because we're like, oh, my God, like the clothing that I was wearing is not comfortable anymore. So our next question relates to social anxiety disorder and autism. So our listener says, is it necessarily a disorder when that anxiety or stress is a perfectly reasonable response to what we're experiencing during social situations? I was diagnosed with social anxiety 15 years before I was diagnosed as autistic, and it clearly was just one thing mistaken for another. Is there a better term to use that doesn't make it sound like you have an anxiety disorder? Yeah, well, I think the thing with the D word or the disorder word is that technically from the DSM-5, for you to meet quote-unquote criteria for any disorder, it has to cause marked distress in you and it has to you have to be experiencing the symptoms of whatever that disorder is to the point where it's impacting one or more functional environments, like it's impacting your ability to work or um, have relationships, have a social life, um, study, that sort of thing. So there's sort of that criteria about looking at whether something's a disorder or not. But with the whole social anxiety side of things, this is something that I see in a lot of people that I do assessments with, and I'm sure you would have seen it. Michelle as well, is if you don't actually take the person's autism or their neurotype into account and they are misdiagnosed as being neurotypical, they may actually appear to have social anxiety disorder when actually they're experiencing anxiety in social situations because of having a different neurotype and finding it maybe more difficult to understand the neurotypical social rules or maybe experiencing bullying or negative feedback in that social environment because their brain is of a different neurotype. So yeah, I would say like the experience of feeling anxious in social situations is pretty common um, in autism and also in ADHD as well. So yeah, I think you've got to be careful as a clinician. If you're going to diagnose someone with social anxiety disorder, you want to rule in or rule out, is there actually an underlying neurodivergence behind that? And then also the way society is treating that person because they have a different neurotype too, because the DSM really looks at the individual and in a way it can kind of put the blame on the individual. Like, okay, you're being bullied at school. Therefore you develop, you've developed social anxiety disorder. You've developed a disorder. But what about the people that were bullying you because you were different? What's their disorder? (laughs) You know, it doesn't take into account the cultural context or the wider context of what's leading to you to experience those symptoms of anxiety. Yeah, look, I mean, I completely agree. I think um, moving into a more kind of uh, holistic, I guess, a conceptualization of mental health and people's individual mental functioning is the way of the future, right? Seeing each of these things as siloed within the individual, like you have social anxiety disorder, as opposed to, you know, as our listener said, 
isn't this just a reasonable and rational response to the life experiences of being an undiagnosed neurodivergent person? So yeah, I agree. Okay. So another question uh, from a listener is when I hear about interoception levels, it's generally described as either too much or too little awareness. I'm confused where I sit. I seem to be intensely aware of a lot of things happening in my body. Sometimes things that you're not supposed to be aware of at all, but the location can be very vague. For example, I literally can't tell the difference between hunger, stomach pain, i.e. chronic gastritis, and the MMC or migrating motor complex. So I respond to all abdominal pain or discomfort by eating more food. I spent decades wondering why I was constantly hungry all the time. I like to call it strong but fuzzy interoception. And is this fuzziness common in those with strong awareness or do people tend to be good at pinpointing where it comes from? Hmm. Good question. Um, and I, I love that the response is like, oh, I'll just eat more food. <laughs> <laughs> um, so look, no, good question. Um, and I think this really speaks to the different, uh, I guess, levels or stages of interoception. So um, a good way to break it down is we've kind of interoception sort of follows like three um, stages, I guess. The first stage being being aware of a state change. So being aware that your body is telling you something. And it sounds like this listener has no difficulty with that. They're very aware when their body is giving them a message or giving them information. And it's actually sounding like they've got heightened awareness of that, that they really intensely feel and experience that. So that's the first level of interoception or the first step, I guess, of interoception. So the next stage is being able to actually more acutely perceive where that change in state is coming from and perceive different levels of that change in state. So that could be, you know, relevant to what our listener's question is. That could be perceiving the difference between, okay, this is hunger versus this is anxiety, like butterflies in my tummy versus this is like a, um, you know, gastrointestinal issue. So perceiving those kind of slight differences in where is this coming from in my body? How intense is it? And kind of being able to differentiate it from similar you know, but different sensations. And then the third level is understanding what it means and how to action it. So for instance, okay, this is cool. And this is where our language comes in. This is where um, language is so key actually for good interoception skills. And one of the reasons actually why a lot of autistic individuals um, can have a hard time with their interoception, with that third stage in particular, with their interoception is not being taught the language to actually identify and organize internal experience. So the third stage is like, okay, this, I would call this mild hunger and how to action this is I need to eat something within the next hour, basically, versus, oh God, I'm getting a searing pain in my abdomen. <laughs> how I action this is I go to my doctor, <laughs> right? So I think it's a really good question and it really speaks to all the different things that are involved in good interoception. And actually that final stage, which is how do we action those messages from our body? 
So our next question from a listener is, how does neurodiversity impact workload capabilities and how can I find a type of work that works with my neurodiversity? Another question would be, how can I set realistic expectations around work? Yeah, so this is something that we talked about a lot in the episode episode in season three with Tanya around work stuff. And then also in the episode we released with Bob Cook. Um, so I'd encourage you to go and check those out, but I think it really is part of that getting to know yourself, getting to know your neurotype, knowing um, like what works for you in different job environments or different jobs that you've had. And one of the things we talked about in that episode with Tanya was maybe writing a list of all the jobs that you've had, the different experiences that you've had in the workplace, and really having a think about what the different factors were that drained you um, or the factors that worked for you in different jobs. And you'll get a sense of as well, like, If in certain jobs you work this at many hours a week or in other jobs, you know, you worked three days a week, what were you like? Did you have enough energy to do other things? Were you constantly burned out? You know, that's really, I think, where you find out what is your ideal workload where you can contribute and work, but then not also not have it impact your mental health, physical health and your ability to do other things. So that's it for our Q&A episode today. And this is our last episode of season three. So thank you everyone for joining us uh, for this season. We wish everyone a super restful holiday period. I think everyone really needs it. And we'll be back in early 2023 for season four. See you in 2023. So for anyone wanting to continue getting content over our season break, our Patreon will still be active. So we offer two tiers on our Patreon, so either uh, a monthly live Zoom hangout with us um, or the Zoom hangout and one additional content post a month. So if anyone's interested in keeping in contact over the season break, just jump onto our Patreon and we can do it that way. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.